This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is the story of a famous coyote, a gringo called Elden Kid. His name is Legend down on the border for the crazy shit he did. He knew where to swim. Careful not to act on a whim. The dude was cool, he took La Migra to school when they tried to follow him. After running a successful coyote operation for the better part of a decade, Eldon Kidd had finally been caught and arrested by the Border Patrol for illegally crossing migrants into the United States, also known as people smuggling. While his partner, Tim Burrison, had been released after 28 days in prison, Eldon was looking at a minimum of seven years due to his prior record. His only hope for freedom and a return to his family was working within the United States legal system. He needed a lawyer, a good one. But where Eldon was in custody, in a sparsely populated region of West Texas, a good lawyer was hard to find. I'm Anthony Foster. My first job was with the United States Marine Corps during defense work and later trial work in uh, Jacksonville, North Carolina, Camp Lejeune. Then I went to work for the district attorney's office in Odessa, Texas. Then I moved to Alpine, Texas, because I got divorced and got remarried and my fourth wife, her third wife, sorry, third wife decided she wanted to move to Alpine, so we moved. Then I got divorced again. Then I ended up in Fort Davis, pretty much doing private practice. And that's how attorney Anthony Foster came to meet Eldon Kidd. The first time I heard about Eldon Kidd, I was over for a hearing in the little courthouse we had at the time. Eldon was there, his associate was there, and he kind of leaned across and said, can you come and see me? And then I went over to the jail in Brewster County, and uh, that's when I talked to him and got all the information. He told me what was going on, you know, how they were doing it, how they were smuggling people. Our plan, because he got caught red-handed, was to get the best deal out of the whole thing. Unfortunately, Eldon wasn't just any coyote. He was an American. He had a reputation with federal officials, and they had been hunting him for some time now. Under these circumstances, getting any deal, let alone the best one, would have been difficult. But here's where fate entered Eldon's life once again. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Bryant Dumble. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane 
has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know if it was a commercial aircraft. We have another copy. There is the second plane, another passenger plane hitting the World Trade Center. It is a surreal and devastating scene over here, something like I've never seen before. Following September 11, 2001, everything changed, including the priorities of those entrusted with protecting our borders. After all, Corruption within the Border Patrol left cracks in the security of the border. Cracks that a now shaken federal government could not afford to leave open. So they sought help wherever they could find it. They approached him. Pretrial services doesn't like people becoming undercover or cooperating. They don't mind those people talking about and giving information. But they don't want them to become actively involved as operating agents. So when I got the information saying that part of the deal was that he was going to be a a cooperating individual, then that was kind of odd because it almost never happened. Eldon was offered a deal. Work with the government or go to prison. We will be your parole agents for five years. And if you don't perform, you come right back here. Then that started a new five-year chapter of my related smuggling career. So then I went from being a coyote to working with the Border Patrol. is American Coyote. I'm your host, Andrea Lopez Villafaña. In our 10th and final episode, Eldon Kidd begins working as an informant for the Border Patrol as he tries to maintain his past life. Once I made the deal, I was free to go. I went to the impound yard, I got my van out, and I drove back from Texas back to home. In 2001, Eldon was released from prison in Texas and allowed to return home to his life in Riverside, California under the condition he would go undercover for the government. In almost every way, Eldon was the ideal confidential informant for the Department of Homeland Security, which had replaced Immigration and Naturalization Services after the September 11th attacks. He was a living legend in the American immigrant communities and had unfettered access to the border crossing network. He was also a recognizable and reliable contact on the other side of the border, and they wasted no time before putting Eldon to work. My duties were somewhat surprising with the Border Patrol. They were mainly concerned with ferreting out corrupt border agents. So what they asked me to do was kind of sketchy. They would ask me to go down to Tijuana in maybe one of the darker, rougher parts of town and walk around and look a little bit lost and ask 
if there was someone who could help me cross a friend. Usually that was, okay, I'll take you to a guy, and then that guy will take me to another guy. And the whole time I'm quite worried because just by asking the question, you could be arrested. So finally I would find someone and I would tell them that this is a particularly important person and they cannot be caught. They absolutely cannot be caught. The price doesn't matter. It's just that they have to be taken there for certain. Armed with my experience in Mexico, and I could name names and situations, I was 100% believable to them because of my history. So they would direct me to border guards that were on the take. So once the contact was made, then it was up to me to find a person who had a passport, who was a U.S. citizen, that would be willing to play the role and be crossed over. This person could not be just some Mexican on the street. Well, of course, I asked them, do you have an agent that would be willing to do this? And they did not. At the time, at least in the beginning, I thought that they were very concerned for my safety and that I was more or less part of the family. But I quickly saw that that was not the case. They were not willing to risk their own agents. So I had to find someone who was legal and would be able to do that job for some of money, usually under $500. Most people certainly did shut me down. There were always a few that I could find just by word of mouth and a friend who knows a friend who could use an extra 500 bucks. Set it up, send somebody through, get all the information. They would be arrested. The same corrupt agents that ex-Border Patrol Officer Jen Budd had encountered over the course of her career were now being rooted out by the government through confidential informants like Eldon, and then not being prosecuted. In most cases, they give them the option, you're done, sign here, you're resigned now, because they didn't want that kind of news, and they still don't want that kind of news to be public. Meanwhile, back at home, Eldon's family was again wary of their father's activities. Now that he was out of prison, a familiar pattern began to emerge, something Eldon's daughter, Tammy Kidd, remembers vividly. My dad doesn't really do a direct, this is what's going on in life. It's more like, this is what I'm doing, and catch glimpses of it along the way to put your pieces together. As he started doing, I don't know what you call them, jobs or whatever, as he started working for them, yeah, he would tell us, I'm going to go surveillance this place, or I'm going to have to go be taped and have a conversation with her. It was not an initial, right when he comes home from jail, we didn't have that talk. It was more once the action started, then he would let us in on where he's going. And even though he was working for the government now, they were still occasionally allowing him to cross people as a coyote in order to maintain a rock-solid cover for anyone suspicious of his new intentions. Eileen Kidd's husband, Mark Ursik, remembers evidence of this in his first meeting with his future father-in-law. I pulled up outside, and he was standing in the driveway. Uh, I'd heard a lot about him. He's fairly well-known in the city where we live, and, but when I pulled up that day, he was in the back of his van, had both the doors open, and he was packing things. And I walked up next to him, and I said, Hi, my name is Mark. I'm dating Eileen. And he didn't even look up. He just 
kept shuffling stuff around. And he said, so you're a good swimmer? And I said, yeah, I'm a good swimmer. And he said, can you swim five miles in the ocean? I said, I, I don't think so. And he's like, okay. And that was it. Like, he just never even looked at me. And I just walked in the house. I didn't realize at the time why he asked me if I could swim five miles in the ocean. It was sometime later that I realized that he had just gotten back from doing a trip like that, where he had swam down to Mexico and swam back from San Diego. However, as Mark became part of the family, he began to get a full understanding for Eldon and his status in the immigrant community. He's like the godfather. You know, you go to neighborhoods around Riverside or Fontana there where we were living in, and everybody knew him. You'd go, to a, you'd go walking through a, a flea market, and people would call out his name as you're walking through, just like, Eldon, Eldon, Eldon. One time I was out with him just running some errands, you know, like Home Depot and stuff. And on the way back, he's like, I stop at this apartment complex and take care of something. So we got out of the car, I just followed him up to the door. Knocks on the door. And this woman answers the door and her husband comes up from the hallway. And Eldon said, time's up. And they said, oh, okay, well, what can we give you? And I don't know the backstory to any of this, right? So Eldon walks in and he unplugs this like huge flat screen TV they have sitting there and just walks out the door. And we just walked out and put it in this van. And he said, you know, I lent them money some time ago. I gave them months and months and months. And I told him, listen, if I don't have it by this date, then I need something. If you're not going to give me money, I need something of value. And they didn't pitch a fit or complain or anything. They just kind of like said, do what you got to do. So he takes that TV and he walks out. And then we drove to another neighborhood and he went to a different house and knocked on the door. And there was like three families living in this house. There was a bunch of people in there. And he's like, I got a surprise for you. And he just gave him the TV. Everybody in the house was excited to see him and the little kids are calling out his name. And by the time we leave the house, the neighbors are all outside and you know they're all calling his name. I was like, seriously, like the Godfather walked into the neighborhood. Eldon's revered status within this community was built over more than a decade of crossing. Over tens of thousands of miles traveled with thousands of lives changed, reunited, and even saved. But now, he was working for the other side. And this disparity was a struggle for Eldon. Yes, he may have helped an immigrant family one day, but the next, he could be called back to work for the government again. I do remember him saying it felt like he was betraying his friends and betraying what he had worked for. But it was getting harder and harder to pass people, and so it was getting more and more dangerous. For him to be working for Homeland Security gave me more peace. A 20-something Eileen kid even unwittingly joined Eldon on one of his operations for the government and witnessed this distress firsthand. He took me to one of his associates' houses of someone else who passed with him. It wasn't an officer. It was another Hispanic lady who also had a passing business. She was broad, she was tough. She had a, a shaved haircut, um, somewhat androgynous. 
eyes that really studied you. We got back in the car after meeting her and he said, she's one of the people who passes people still and I have to turn her in and I feel really bad about it. I have to rat her out and it hurts my feelings because she's been good to me. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. As time went on and Eldon's success as a confidential informant continued, the jobs he was assigned became increasingly dangerous. Nathan Kidd remembers this having an effect on his father's state of mind. I saw him nervous on a couple of occasions when he had to meet with certain people. When you're playing both sides, what a terrible turmoil that is. And so I think he wasn't really used to running with those certain types of people, certain types of crowds in that underlying industry. I remember there were times he would say things to me like, I'm going to be meeting at this location and I should be back around this time, you know, kind of as a, a way just to let me know where he was going and if something had happened that I would have some information to relay to, you know, one of the agents he was working for. While there was always an element of danger when Eldon was working undercover for DHS, one assignment in particular stands out from all the rest. I traveled to Ensenada, met a guy in a pottery shop who was scheduled to buy some guns. I was to say that I was a military man with access to some heavy weapons and set up the deal. My cover was pretty much in doubt because I don't know that much about guns. They said that all I have to do is take my hat off and everything will be fine. Now in the back of a pottery shop in Ensenada, Mexico, working as a spy for the United States government and with a wanted gun runner sitting across from him, Eldon began to get the feeling that things were going south. Body language and facial expressions were alerting me that my story was not flying, so I wanted to go. He was asking questions that I couldn't answer. He was asking questions that he knew the answers to and I didn't. So as instructed, I was supposed to just take off my hat and in comes the cavalry. Take off my hat, no cavalry. I just said, you know what, I don't like the way you guys are, are talking here. I get the feeling something's up. Don't think we can do business. I, at that time, realized that I was not part of the law enforcement family. 
but I was a dispensable rat. So a lot of fear entered into all my future dealings with them. The constant stress of being a confidential informant for the government, little more than a tool in their broader law enforcement operations, wore on Eldon. His professional life, once an exciting, heroic adventure, was now a chore that confronted him with feelings of guilt, frustration, and fear. What was once seen as an opportunity to be free was now feeling more and more like a prison sentence. And unfortunately for Eldon, life was about to get harder as his wife Janice had decided to end their marriage. I think that prison changed me in a lot of ways. Certainly my spiritual beliefs, and those are the beliefs that are paramount to Janice. The church means more to her than anything whatsoever. And I was, I was away from that. I felt like I had graduated from that kind of religion. And I still admire so many aspects of it, but it just wasn't for me. And it was her dream to have a nine to five husband that would go to church and follow the rules. And it was a miracle that she put up with me as long as she did. So we, we drifted apart and I was not always faithful to her. In the end, it wasn't one event, it was a, a long time coming. And if there's any blame at all, I mean, there is blame and it's all mine. Without going into too much detail, the facts are Eldon had affairs and Janice filed for a divorce. But it's also obvious that Eldon's lifestyle and his career as a coyote required a lot from his wife, a lot of patience a lot of loyalty, and a lot of sacrifice. As the oldest daughter, Eileen Kidd grew up watching and later understanding how Eldon's actions and the consequences of those actions changed her mother over time. I think she was getting frustrated with him and she was getting weary and to cover for him for many years was tiresome. And through the workforce and through going back to school late at night while he was incarcerated, I think she grew a little bit of a backbone. And I think that that was different for my dad to come home to a slightly stronger woman. She had been through something hard and she had done it alone. She didn't need him for everything anymore. And so he wasn't the hero to her that he needed to be. Janice declined to be interviewed for our podcast, explaining that she preferred to keep her thoughts to herself about this time in her life. Regardless, she is without question the unsung hero of this story. She made the right decision. Her life is better now. Without me, she's happier, more complete, much less stress. And I'm really happy for her Wish the best for her always. Knocked down, but not out, Eldon regrouped. As with all the heartbreaking losses and times of intense struggle he experienced in his life, he was determined to 
to learn from it, to move on, and find new ways to start fresh. So after five long years working under the thumb of Homeland Security, Eldon was released from his deal as a confidential informant. Well, basically, after they wrapped up an errant customs enforcement agent that we had been working on, there was a lull and the time had kind of run out. And they said, if you would like to sign up again, you'd be welcome to do that. But as far as we're concerned, you've fulfilled your obligation and we're just going to call it a day. But for me, there was really no hesitation. I was completely done with that. Shortly thereafter, he fell in love again with a Mexican woman who worked for one of his friends. Well, I guess it was somewhere around 2007. And I met a girl that had a small child. She carried in a small bassinet with this baby that was two weeks old. Of course, my kids had just left the nest and I still had a longing for that. I think that I definitely got way more maternal instincts than a man should have. When I just saw that precious little baby in the bassinet, I thought, well, you know, that was the uh, hook. And that was my point of falling in love. We married a few years ago and are still together. And I adopted her two children and uh, they just mean the world to me. Now free from law enforcement oversight and with a new family to provide for, Eldon once again had to figure out how to make a steady living without illegally crossing people over the border. One of the greatest coyotes in history, if a list was ever compiled, was now officially hanging it up. That time was eventful, emotional. It provided for my family. It helped people get into the country. But by jumping the line, we have a certain order to do things here. And although the system is broken, it is the system. And there has to be some kind of order. On an individual basis and an individual situation, I have no regrets. But collectively, I know what I did was wrong. Hopefully I did more good than harm. Most of the people that I have been in touch with have all demonstrated that they were people that should be here in the first place. In the end, America certainly gained some talented and determined people who are willing to risk all. And while the debate about illegal immigration in America rages today as intensely as it ever has, Most of the politicians, pundits, and protesters ignore the complexity of the issue. The invisible line that makes up our southern border is the keeper of a million stories. Stories of sacrifice. Stories of opportunity. Of good and evil. Right and wrong. But each one is unique. And each one is a story of a human being. The talking heads haven't lived it the way Eldon did working over a decade as a coyote. They haven't lived it like those willing to risk their lives for a chance to start over in America. And they haven't lived it like me, a DACA recipient. At five years old, I came to the United States with my parents from Tlaquepaque, a suburb of the city of Guadalajara, Mexico, after my father lost his job as a security guard for the local mayor. 
We settled in Long Beach, California after overstaying our visas, leaving behind our extended family in Mexico for a better life in America. Over the next few years, I learned English. A hobby of mine was paging through the encyclopedia in search of big English words so that I could look up their meanings and practice their pronunciations. In school, my mother always instructed me to say I was born in America. I couldn't visit extended family on holidays or summer break or travel outside the country on class field trips. But I never truly understood what it meant to be an unauthorized immigrant like other DACA recipients until I applied for college. I was accepted into DACA my junior year of high school, which allowed me to begin working as a hostess in a restaurant to save money for college, as I didn't know if I would qualify for loans or a scholarship because of my immigration status. My senior year, I was accepted into San Diego State's journalism program. Yet the day before I graduated from high school, my father was arrested and deported back to Mexico. He now lives in Tijuana, just 30 minutes from where I live in San Diego. Beyond seeing him in jail in San Diego when he was caught trying to cross back into the United States my freshman year of college, I haven't seen my father in person in seven years. I share my story with Eldon one summer afternoon as we walk together through the desolate and beautiful desert scrub along the rusted border fence, just outside the small border town of Hakumba Hot Springs. Far off on the horizon, new construction is underway, expanding the barrier. Eldon had invited my producers and I here to retrace some of his old crossing routes, seeing more of this ever-changing world firsthand. So I always thought it was weird, you know, because I did remember living in Mexico. But it wasn't until I was in middle school, there was a trip we could go on, and then I realized that I couldn't go on that trip. Once I was applying to college, then my mom was like, you, you probably won't be able to go to college. So that's when it really hit me. That's when I understood, you know, what it meant to be undocumented. I love being Mexican and I love the country and I wish I could visit. I wish I could visit my family over there, but. So being Mexican was a source of pride, not shame. Right, right, yeah. That's important that they gave you that. What would you like to see happen? Would you like to see open the gate, let them in? Anybody else that comes in as a child, automatically, you, just because you came across, now you're a citizen. Have you thought of that? Do you have a vision of what you would like in the grand scheme of things if you were king of the world? Yeah, I think when it comes to DACA, I do feel that every person that I've met or interviewed who's a DACA recipient, including myself, all we've done is just fight to be here and we deserve to be here. We only know living here. Not everyone is from Mexico. You know, you have DACA recipients from all over the world. So they were born in a different country, but they don't really know that country. This to us is our home and this is where our careers are. And some people have kids here. For DACA recipients, I would love to see that pathway to citizenship. We walk up a gentle rise. 
elevating us enough to see over the border fence. There are a number of homes and other structures on the Mexican side, built along the border, now empty, abandoned, and dilapidated, much like the town we're standing in. Before the border fence was constructed, these were functioning communities with residents who would freely cross into America and back to Mexico on a daily basis. Now, they're ghost towns. You like them to build a gate here and say, come on, come world? On, come on in. Yep. Yeah, do you think that that's actually feasible or more like a dream? More like a dream. <laughs> well, yeah, that's how it was before. But sometimes I question myself, well, what have I done? What, what did I do? Was it correct? On an individual basis, I believe, yes, every single person. Though I do feel like to protect the society that we have, that people should come. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if it was in my power to open the gate and let anyone come from Argentina all the way up to Mexico, I think that it would be truly a disaster for the country. Mm -hmm. And I think that the people that came would probably suffer in different ways when they come here. Mm -hmm. I also believe that people who live by the river and they catch a fish and they have a few tortillas and they don't know how good they have it at times. Yeah. I often brought people from wonderful little villages that I was able to see and actually pick them up. Mm -hmm. And then I take them to Boyle Heights and they're going, oh my God, what, you know, yeah. I left that for this and you mean I have to work 40 or 50 hours a week just to live here? Yeah, I know my mom's told me sometimes, she's like, I remember, you know, when I lived in Mexico when I was younger, um, how slow life was there. Like we, it wasn't about like working to pay the bills and everything. Like it was, it was just, life just felt like it was slower. Maybe it was a different time too, but she always tells me that. And she's like, here, you know, I'm always working. She's a waitress. So you know, she's always living paycheck to paycheck. So. I don't know. See, I don't know either. Like, I definitely do not know. Such a complicated. It's one of those questions that I think about almost every day. Mm -hmm. Eldon now gazes off at the landscape, over the rusty barrier that runs as far as the eye can see in both directions. It's almost as if he's looking back to a time when the border was little more than that invisible line in the sand. And knowing perhaps that he shares some of the blame for how it has all changed. So what is Eldon Kidd, one of the most legendary coyotes of the 20th century, doing today? When we ask Eldon for specifics, he invites us out to where he lives in Riverside, California, with a second wife and two adopted children, to see for ourselves. When we arrive, Eldon takes us on a walking tour of his property, an oasis in the Southern California desert. He is technically a tour guide after all. This is a tree that my mother planted when I was born. It's called a Cephothancia. So it was planted in 1953. And it's uh, kind of rare. I think it's from South Africa. This is a plant called rue. 
And it's a sign, only Mexicans plant this in front of their house. This is my bird feeding station, so I can see it from my office. I have always loved birds. It's kind of been my passion. This is my tree nursery. When they get big enough, I'll plant them somewhere else on the property. And I've got birdhouses placed all around. And this is a special birdhouse because I, I keep something in there in case I really, really get scared. At this point, Eldon opens the birdhouse and pulls out a pistol. So this is a Glock 19, very popular with law enforcement, and it's a nine millimeter, and it holds a lot of shots. So it's something that when I needed to swim, I could just tuck it inside my wetsuit. And I only had to actually use it for self-protection one time in the desert in Arizona. When smugglers don't have a group, they hide along the trail and rob the people who are coming through because they know, they know the trails. So unfortunately, one shot at me from a very close distance and I shot and completely emptied my clip of 19 and ended up only hitting him in the foot. I thought he was going to be riddled, but I'm not a good shot. That's actually the, the gun that, that my wife got me. So it's got a little bit of, um, I guess, sentimental value. On Eldon's land, there's also a menagerie of animals, happily chirping birds like parakeets and pigeons, a pen full of Yorkie puppies, a pot-bellied pig, and three or four mutts, uncollared and untagged, who zigzag around us as we walk the property, sidling up every so often for a quick pat. Soon we come to a back house and a few large tents built over gardening beds. This is my other little cottage industry. I get four crops a year, and this is all sold to a Chinese clinic, and they make it into CBD oil. Under the tents are hundreds of impeccably well-cared-for marijuana plants, the same drug which landed Eldon in one of Mexico's worst prisons and nearly killed him is now what helps him make a living. Last year, the price was 900 a pound. This last harvest was 1300 a pound. When it's harvest, it's hung upside down to dry for six to 12 days. Then I have a group of Jehovah Witnesses that come and trim it for me. So they put on their readings and trim and uh, really no chance of theft. More than anything, it's a great place to hide from my wife. And it is a Zen place. I just come out here. I don't really turn the radio on, except for Sundays I like to listen to uh, public radio. So I'll, I'll turn that on. But mostly I just kind of out here and, you know, hanging out with my thoughts. We see another acre of property that has some spruced up trailers Eldon rents to construction sites and film productions as well as a tilled field that has been transformed into an organic farm. All different side hustles, Eldon seems to effortlessly manage to make a comfortable living. But then our tour is cut short. Eldon has somewhere to be. We follow him inside, and a few minutes later, he's changed out of his standard-issue dickies and hiking boots and into a suit that looks like it's worn about once a decade. I only own two ties. 
I got this coat in a thrift store and I thought I would just be wearing it only to my funeral, but I got invited to a wedding. Chinese girl that I brought over quite some time ago. She was 14 when I brought her over. We made the swim through the ocean, stayed in touch lightly with the family over the years and got an invitation to the wedding. Well, this girl has really overcome a lot and done a lot with her life. She's now in dentistry. She has her DDS degree, working in a clinic. Kind of excited to see her. I feel very proud of her. I didn't have much to do with her upbringing or anything, but just was glad to be instrumental in bringing such a productive person into the country. Kind of excited to see her again. It's been a few years. Off I go. As he tells us later, everyone but Eldon at the wedding will be Chinese. He will sit awkwardly at a corner table at the reception and eat alone. Most of the other guests having no idea who he is or why he is there. Only the bride and her parents will know that without the hulking American in the corner, none of this would have been possible. In an age where the leaders in the United States will pass laws and build walls and separate families in an effort to control who makes up America, it is Eldon Kidd and the others like him, the wily ones, the rebels, the ramblers, who break the rules and buck authority, who preserve an original American ideal, that this country be the land of opportunity for anyone willing to risk it all. Would I do it all again? Some of it, not all of it. I have regrets and I have guilt. There were a lot of things that happened that I wish that wouldn't, especially the suffering of my family. But as far as a life fully lived, I think I at least had that. I have a lot of memories. I did some good, I did some bad. Thinking back to the first time when I was returning from Southern Mexico on a, an adventure trip, sliding back the door on the, the Ford van, finding the two girls in there. At the time, I had no idea how much that might change my life. Walking across the bridge with them, hand in hand, as if we owned the place, making it through, the joy on their faces when they were reunited with their parents, that's something that I would do over and over again. If you would like to learn more about how to help with the immigration crisis along the U.S.-Mexico border, check out organizations like Texas Civil Rights Project at txcivilrights.org, Border Angels at borderangels.org, Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights at theyoungcenter.org, or Raices at raicestexas.org, r-a-i-c-e-s-texas.org. American Coyote is created, written, and produced by Eli Corris and Joshua Schaefer of Pegalo Pictures. 
Executive produced by Jason Hoke and produced by Andrew Richards of Imperative Entertainment and produced by Alvin Cowan. Original music for the series is composed by Joshua Klebe. The original corrido, The Ballad of Elden Kid, written and performed by Daniel Schaefer and Los Two Guys out of Austin, Texas. Assistant editing by Max Drankpole. Sound recording by Nick Sinakis and Matt Stouter. Sound editing by Joshua Schaefer and Nick Sinakis. Sound design and sound mixing by Craig Platney. Poster design and graphics by Jeff Quinn. Production legal by Sean Fawcett of Raymond Legal PC and Davis Wright Tremaine, LLP. Post record by Deborah Reeves and Signature Sound in San Diego, California. Please subscribe, download, and share these episodes and follow us on social media for extra content and updates. I'm your host, Andrea Lopez Villafaña. Thanks again for listening.